Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 95, please. Psalm 95. We are talking about building a spiritual legacy. And I've selected very specific psalms to highlight very specific principles. Now, let me give you the principle for this week, and then let's build on it as we open Psalm 95. I want my children and my grandchildren to learn that the worship of God must never be approached casually. And that true worship is the non-negotiable essence of their spiritual development in their relationship to God. Let me say it again because I believe it's critical. I want my children and my grandchildren to learn that worship must never be approached casually. And that true worship is the non-negotiable essence of their spiritual development and their relationship to God. Psalm 95 is a part of a series of psalms that begins right around Psalm 93 and goes all the way through Psalm 100, instructing the nation how to worship, the specifics of worship. How do we approach as sinful people a holy God. And when we come to Psalm 95, we have, I believe, the core principle of all of those surrounding Psalms. And I've chosen that not specifically to give you only a series of steps in order to approach worship the right way, but to build a base, a base of your own spiritual knowledge to understand what you're doing here today. Now, the psalm was not written specifically for people in the private worship of their own spiritual development. This is assumed. But Psalm 95 was written to instruct us in corporate worship. Corporate worship. What are we to look like? What are we to act like? What are the principles of worship to be in place that you and I need to apply to us whenever we come into this corporate setting. Now, there is tremendous debate, uh, especially in reformed circles, of what is right in worship and what is wrong in worship. You have some who believe this and some who believe that. I don't think any of that debate is really all that important, except for this reason. I believe what we need to understand is that worship corporately must never be approached casually. I think the forms will change. I think the structures will change. There are certain principles, certain guidelines that God gives us, and I believe they are highlighted in this specific psalm. There are three of them, three elements of worship that are non-negotiable. I'm going to give you two of them today. 
And then next week, I'm going to talk to you about the third principle and then develop for you what I believe are the preparatory steps you need to take before you come here for corporate worship. In fact, I would go as far as to say that if this entire church were to put into place what I am going to teach you next week, we would see elements, if not full-scale, revival in our church. We would see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we have not seen. The 95th Psalm, as I said, is one of a series of psalms. It's a series of worship hymns and instructions that God gives the nation And he tells them, these are the things, these are the principles I want you to employ every time you come together for worship. Look with me at verses one and two. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Thanksgiving and praise are to be the major elements in the songs that we sing. We are to come together for the purpose of singing. Now, you'll notice the first word of uh, verse one is the word come. Well, in this particular setting, Israel, the people, the worshiping body were not in church yet. They were outside of the church building. They were standing outside, getting ready to go inside. And as this psalm unfolds, he instructs you as to what you're to do outside, the call to worship, if you will. And then when you're inside, he tells you what you're supposed to do. And then as you turn around and go back outside, he tells you what you're supposed to do. Worship is not complete until you have turned around and gone outside and applied what you have learned. I was told in all of the journals, all of the professional journals that I read, I read it again and again and again, 95% of what the preacher says is forgotten within two days. Now, that didn't make me feel too good. 95% of what the preacher preaches is forgotten within two days. I had someone recently come up to me and they said, "Um, Pastor, that was just an outstanding sermon last week. That was just, it just blessed my heart. I said, well, what was it about? (laughs) Well, they assumed that I knew what it was about, but they didn't. They had no clue. They had to stop and think. I said, okay. And I gave them some key words to remember. And then it crystallized. They had already forgotten, although they knew they had been blessed. Now, the reason they forgot what they had heard is because they forgot to take the third step. And that is to apply in the context of their day-to-day living what they have just learned. And here's the key, prepare their hearts for what they're going to hear the next time. That's what we've got to do when we come together to worship. We've got to have our hearts prepared. So when we look at that, uh, it says, it says, come, let us sing. They're singing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Now, there is one element that is present, singing. Singing is part of what we are to do in the corporate setting. But drop down to verse six, you'll see a second element. He says, come, there's that word again, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. 
You see, through the ages, the believers in God, both in the Old and the New Testaments, have sung their praises. They've expressed their joy. They've expressed their thankfulness in the context of public worship. Now, I want to tell you something. There is nothing. There is nothing more conducive to dullness in a worship service than half-hearted singing. Half-hearted singing. See, the exhortation here is appropriate. He says, come, let us sing for joy and let us shout to the Lord, the rock of our salvation. Now, the problem with us is we're kind of worried about what everybody else around us is thinking. We're kind of worried about what the next person beside us is going to say. They might, they might do something crazy, like raise their hands. We Presbyterians don't raise our hands. They might say, amen. This word in verse one, where he talks about the rock of our salvation, that's going to come into play later. We're not going to talk about it now. We'll talk about that next week. But it is the rock, Paul tells us in Corinthians, who is Christ. It is the rock, and he's defined as Christ. Christ is the rock. You could rightfully say as Christians, your interpretation of verse one should be, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout to Christ, who is the rock of our salvation. Now, we need to understand that when we do that, that we are singing from the Lord. He is the rock upon which we rest. He is the rock from which we draw our strength. The motivation, therefore, for singing and thanksgiving and praise is to recognize the source of our strength. Now, one thing you need to understand, let's get this through our heads. God does not need you to worship him. He said, if you don't, the rocks will cry out. Now, what you need to also understand is that singing and expressing thanksgiving and joy before the Lord is not for his benefit. It's for your benefit. Now, here's the reason. When we enter into that kind of union with our God, several things are happening. One, and this is the smaller of the two, one, you are blessing the people around you. How do you know what they came to church with today? How do you know what struggle they bear? Maybe they needed to hear you sing, I surrender all. Maybe they're having problems surrendering all themselves. How do you know that you didn't bless them and help them to grow in their understanding of how to endure the pain that they're experiencing when you sing the great hymns of our faith, like, come thou almighty king, and you speak of this, the coming of the spirit and the coming of the son and the coming of the whole of the Trinity. How do you know you didn't bless them? Now, by the way, you don't have to sound good either. Because I've heard some of you sing and you don't sound real good. Some of you can do this. The blessing here is this, that when the scripture speaks of the singing, he's not talking about necessarily the quality of the music we're singing. He's talking about the heart attitude of thanksgiving and praise. That's why we shout unto the Lord, the God of our salvation.
So now I want you to see something here. The motivation is not because God needs you to worship him. I had a guy ask me recently, a guy who's really kind of an agnostic, one of the uh, intellectual elite. Uh, Sadly, he teaches our young people in school. But uh, he said to me in a debate forum, he said, what kind of God is it that you serve that demands for egotistical reasons that you worship him? He said, what other person would demand that somebody bow down and worship them? And I said, this is why you'll never understand. You just don't get it. We are not talking about everybody else here. We are talking about the God of the universe. Now listen, when the God of the universe calls us to worship him, and it is for our sakes that he is calling us to worship him, not his sake, here's the reason. Because in the context of that kind of worship, we enter into a communion with that God who gives us himself. And since there is nothing higher that God can give us than himself, God is giving us the very highest we could possibly experience when we enter into communion with him. It is for the purpose of blessing us that we worship God. And this is where my friend went off course here because somehow or another, He's equated that God with other people. What other person would demand worship? None. None should ever try. In fact, the psalmist goes on and he says, look at the verse three. He says, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. Verse five, the sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. You see what the psalmist is doing here? He's giving us the basic reasons why everyone should be giving thanks and praise to God. And I want you to notice something else here. If we look at Romans chapter one, you don't have to turn to it now. I I believe it's one of the great chapters uh, of the New Testament. It's a theological chapter that lays the foundation of expectations that God has for all mankind. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul speaks of those who do not know Christ. You see, we tend to think of worship as what Christians do. Worship is what we do. And God expects us to worship him. And that's true, but it's only half true. Because you see, God also expects the heathen to worship him. He expects the lost to worship him. Now you say, well, they don't. Well, here's why. Romans chapter one, verse 21, it says, for although they knew God, 95% of Americans say they believe in God. 95% of Americans say they believe in God. And of those 95% who say they believe in God, most of them will declare that they believe that Jesus is God. The problem with that is, is what Paul says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, the bottom line here is they did not care to recognize the relationship God has with them, creator and created. When we look at the various religions that our world struggles with today, 
We talk about, for example, Eastern mysticism. Eastern mysticism, Hinduism, Buddhism, all those other isms, they all come together with the same thing, the same thought. You and I believe in an I-thou relationship. I, the creature, thou, the creator. And we understand the great chasm between the two. That our God is a holy other God, fully transcendent, never to be approached casually. But what the Eastern religions do, and many of the New Age movements do, and what a lot of Gnosticism does, and I'll talk about those in a moment, is it's not an I-thou relationship, it's an I-am-thou relationship. I am God, you are God, and we are God. There's a movie coming out called The Da Vinci Code. I want you to go see it. I want you to read the book. And then I want you to ask yourself, why have 45 million plus people read that book? 45 million copies of that book have been sold. The context of that book, the premise of that book is very simple. The premise is Jesus was not God. Jesus was a mere man. And that Jesus had a physical, sexual relationship with Mary of Magdala. And that they bore children together and that those children still live today through the genes, so to speak. And they became this somewhat hidden seed, mysteriously hidden. And that the church has been for generations hiding the so-called documents that prove all of that. And people read it and they say, what's going on here? Your friends are going to go see the movie? Your neighbors are going to go see the movie? They have some of the best actors in the world that are going to play the parts in that movie? It's going to be a blockbuster. And they're going to walk out of that and they're going to say to you, you who are a Christian... They're going to question your faith. They're going to question the Jesus you claim is God. They're going to say, well, what about this? And we're going to walk away, if we're not intelligent enough to figure it out, with our thumbs in our mouths, coming back here to church and wondering in our own hearts whether or not they've got a point. And we look at this and we say, this is new. No, it's not. This is not new. The, the apostles had to deal with the same form of Gnostic heresy. You see, what Gnosticism is, and the Gnostic Gospels is where Dan Brown gets most of his material from, they are third and fourth century documents that have proven to be frauds. Well after the established doctrines of the New Testament, well after the apostolic fathers have died off, we find these documents that claim something about Christ that isn't true. And we look at that and say, where did that come from? Well, study the Gospels. For example, look at the Gospel of John. Here's what a Gnostic believed. And you say, well, why do I care what a Gnostic believed? Because they still believe it. The religions you and I struggle with still believe what I'm about to tell you. This is the essence of the debate between what we believe as Christians when we say that our God is unique and there is none like him, there is but one way to salvation, that Jesus Christ is the maker, creator God of the universe, as the psalmist said, and other religions that claim he was just a mere man or a prophet or a great teacher. 
The Gnostics believe this. The word Gnosticism is the Greek word gnosis. It means to have knowledge. Way back in the pre-Jesus days, people like uh, Plato, who gave birth to people like Philo and the Hellenist Greeks in the culture in which Paul lived, they believed in this theory. That in order for us to get to heaven, whatever that was, they refused to define it. We had to go through a stepladder of forms, if you will. Each form that we get to is because of a higher degree of knowledge that we obtain. We become smarter and smarter and smarter. And we do this, by the way, through certain rites and rituals, secret rituals at that. We learn the secret rituals of how to go from one form to another form until we've reached the highest form. They also believed in a dualism, a dualism which was separating the body and the soul. The body was evil. The soul was good. You are made up of body and soul. The Gnostic would say your body is evil. There is nothing good that can ever dwell in your body. Nothing. Your soul is good, and you only have to take your soul through the higher forms in order to achieve the knowledge of God. Well, there's religions today like Mormonism that have embraced that. We know that there are many religions. Eastern religions basically say the same thing. This is not anything new. Here is the problem with Gnosticism. Here's the problem the early church had with Gnosticism. It's very simple. If nothing good could ever dwell in the flesh, then Jesus, who claims to be God, could not possibly be God. Or, if Jesus died on a cross, it was a mirage. If he really was God and he died on the cross, that was a ghost. It was an apparition. Because nothing good could ever dwell in the flesh. Jesus could not be God. He was nothing but a mere man. In fact, some of the Gnostic Gospels that go to the other extreme and say that Jesus was an apparition, that he was not really flesh and bone. They will go to this extreme and say that when he was on the cross, one of the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, teaches this. When he's on the cross, he's laughing. He's making a mockery. He's laughing because they weren't really crucifying him. So he really didn't die. He really wasn't laid in a tomb and he really did not rise from the dead because he never really was a man. I told this to the reporter who interviewed me. We sat there and we talked considerably about that. And he asked me, I think, a very wonderful question. I thought it was a great question. He said, why is this book so fascinating to people? Why are 45 million people buying it? Why are millions of people Hundreds of millions of dollars going to be spent watching this movie. Why? I said, it's very simple. For a man to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is truly who he said he was means that that Jesus has a binding message on their life. But if he's not who he said he was, instead the greatest liar, hoax, and imposter who ever lived, then we can divorce ourselves from the requirements of his message. Put very simply, we can relieve ourselves of the Christ conscience 
by making him nothing more than a mere man. So we come to John's gospel written around A.D. 90, well before the so-called Gnostic gospels of the third and fourth century were written, the fraudulent documents, the fictional novels, the pseudepigraphal writings, pseudo meaning false, pigraphal authorship. They bore the names of people they were not. John comes up in A.D. 90 and he says, in the very beginning was the logos word. He used a Greek word. He used a Hellenistic word, the word of Philo, the great follower of Plato, the shaper of the Hellenistic culture in which Paul wrote, the Gnosis people, the Gnostics of his day. He said, in the beginning was the word, the logos. Logos meaning the God, whoever he is, God, the creator of the universe, that God, logos, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. Well, the Gnostics wouldn't have a problem with that, would they? They believe that. But then he says this. And that word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Put very simply, God, who is all good, became Flesh, why? So that he could be tempted in every way like unto us. He experienced sexual temptation. He experienced the temptation to lie. He experienced the temptation to be angry. He experienced the temptation of, of stealing every temptation you and I have ever experienced. Christ had to experience it, why? So that he could conquer sin and death by being the sinless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The essence of our faith demands that Jesus is a man, that Jesus is a God, the God, the only God. He is the infinite God man, the same one who created the heavens and the earth. Now, when you go back to Psalm 95, he says of that God that in verse three, the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. I want you to keep something in mind. There are no other gods. Small g. There are no other gods. You say, well, then why does he talk about God above all other gods? There are no other gods. The scripture tells us the gods do not exist. The gods that the Hindus worship, the gods that the Buddhists worship, the gods that the Gnostics worship, that God is non-existent. There, there is no other God. To make a second God means that God is just part of some sort of Godhead. But there are demonic forces behind those various small g gods. The demons are very real. And their desire is to distract you from acknowledging who the rock is. The rock is Christ. And it says there in verse 4, in his hands are the depths of the earth, the mountain peaks before him, the sea. He's kind of taking you on a panoramic view, hasn't he? Go to the top of the Teton Mountains, he made that. Go out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, he made that. Look up into the firmaments at night, he made that. Look at the stars, look at the heavens, look at the earth, look at the creative genius of the earth. The problem with us when we come to worship 
is we presume upon that. You got up this morning, you know what you presumed? You presumed you were going to have air to breathe. You figured when you got up this morning, you were going to go, and everything's going to be all right. You're presuming your next breath. We presume that there's going to be water to drink. We presume that this afternoon we're going to go home and eat something. We're, we're presuming that the very elements that sustain life, the sun, the moon, photosynthesis, the balance of carbon dioxide and oxygen, the very elements that now science has uncovered are the very pores of our life. We presume that they're always going to be there. We don't acknowledge the fact that God says in his word, every day, every time the sun rises, we have a new covenant. God has given us a brand new covenant with every sunrise. The Bible tells us that every day God gives us blessings, new blessings every single day. We presume on those blessings. We presume on the creator. And you know what we do instead? We brag about our own self-sufficiency and we brag about our own self-awareness and our own self-identity and we attribute the very creative genius of God to evolution, to chance, to some sort of fatalistic prehistoric explosion of the stars. And yet when we study the universe, by the way, this is why the liberals do not want intelligent design taught in the schools. They want evolution taught. And most scientists, by the way, most scientists of any reputation whatsoever are abandoning the theories of evolution because they have no scientific leg to stand on. Now we're beginning to stand back for a moment because we have the ability to look out into space. We have the ability to see where we stand in the scheme of things. We are this tiny little dot in this massive universe. And then we're beginning to study how that dot was placed, where it was placed, what was necessary to sustain life, distinct from every other star that you see up there, every other planet. There's only one. There's only one that fits the criteria of life and the requirements of life, and that's our planet. Not only is God showing us this, he seems to have opened a portal that basically says, come and study it. Come and learn it. Your theories are flawed. Come and learn what the truth is. This is what the psalmist is saying. My God is the creator who made the heavens and the earth. He made the heavens. He made the earth. And the only ones to whom we should attribute strength and power is not my mind or my will or my intellect, but the very essence of logos, the very essence of who God is and that God who created us, became a man. Does he need to worship us? Do we need to worship him in some sort of egotistical way? Of course not. We're commanded to worship him for our benefit, that he might give us his own self. There is nothing higher that God can give us. So it is out of love, his great love, that he calls us to worship. He says, come in. Come in to sing. 
Come in to experience the joy of the Lord. Come in to give thanks, not so that I can have my ego built, but that you might enter into a higher relationship with me and you will grow and you will have great joy. Look at verse uh, three again. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Even those who deny his existence, they have their gods. They have the demons they worship. No man is without a God. No man is without a God. But these gods are not real. They do not exist, but the demonic powers behind them do. He says there in verse 3, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all the demonic powers. This new age that we're in. I mean, we got guys on TV making millions of dollars communicating with dead people. And you'll sit there and you'll tune in. And you'll watch that. Question I'm often asked, is he really communicating with dead people? Yeah. Yes, he is. I have no doubts whatsoever. The reason I don't doubt it is because of the prohibition in Scripture against necromancy, which is communication with the dead. But is he communicating with the real people? Or is he communicating with demons? You see, the very things that God prohibits, the very things that God says are an abomination to him, are the very things that now have been dressed up in beautiful clothing to make it look good, to make it look like they are the ones that have their act together, and you are called the foolish radicals because you happen to believe that there's but one God in the universe. We read our stars. We read our astrology reports. Ask a teenager what his sign is. And he'll be able to tell you almost immediately what his sign is. Go on their websites and you'll see they very easily can tell you what their sign is. I'm a Libra. I'm a this. I'm a that. Ask them what verse of scripture has changed their lives and they won't be able to tell you. We worship the very things that God has created. We worship the creation rather than the creator. In his hands are the depth of the earth. It says in verse 4, the sea is his for he made it. He says in verse 6 now, not just sing, not just sing. He says, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Singing with thanksgiving, acknowledging our creator, acknowledging our need for a relationship with him. And now he calls us to the second element of worship. Prayer. And he also tells us a posture we're to have. Now, I don't want you to get caught up on this. Uh, in the scriptures, we have uh, postures that men have taken in prayer. We have one, uh, several cases where the prayer is standing. We have other cases where the prayer is kneeling. We have some where the prayer is laying uh, prostrate on his face, full body length before God. We have even Hezekiah who's laying in his bed with his head turned to the wall. I don't think God's hung up on the posture. But I do think this. The spirit with which we pray is to be a spirit of humility. 
That's why we pray. Prayer, by its very definition, is acknowledgement of the greater power above you and your need for that power. It's an acknowledgement of who your God is. And I read one reformer who put it this way, and I thought it was brilliant the way he put it. He said, let's talk about the posture of prayer. Should you kneel? Should you stand? Should you skip? Should you hop? What should you do? And he made this statement. He said, whatever posture you're comfortable in, go to the one you're not comfortable in and humble yourself before God. Whatever it takes to increase your humility as you go before God, whatever it takes to cause you to bow before your God, whatever posture that means, if you can sit and do that, fine. But if sitting, you think nothing but you're about your dinner this afternoon, how often are you dissuaded in prayer? How long does it take before your, your mind is somewhere else? Then maybe the position needs to change. Oh, can't do that. We're Presbyterians. We can't come to worship that way. We, we can't show the people around us any kind of emotion or humility. We can't do those things because we're doing this. Looking around. What we need to be doing is this. We need to be standing before God and saying, I am your servant. You tell me what you desire of me. 95% of what I preach. It bothers me that you don't remember. That bothers me. And I'm but a mere man. How much more it must grieve the heart of God when you don't even talk to him. You come and you don't even talk to him. You listen to somebody else talk to him, but there's no engagement. It's casual. We're approaching him casually. Almost as though we can just buddy-buddy up with the creator of the universe. That's why the scripture continually tells us to fear God. To fear God. Not to be afraid of God. That's not what he's talking about. But to see the holy otherness of God. But I want you to see something else in verse 7. It says, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. I want you to think about that for a moment. In the context of what he's just said. We're worshiping this holy other God, this transcendent God, this God who is much bigger than you and I can ever imagine, the maker, the creator of the world in which you and I take the elements for granted. That same God who took a little bit of dirt and fashioned you and fashioned me in our mother's womb, that same God who brought life to this planet in a unique and distinct way, far above any other ways in which he has blessed other planets and other stars. You and I, as we sit here today, are unique creatures of a holy and mighty God. Now what does he say? He says, I'm your shepherd. I'm your shepherd. You are the sheep of my pasture. Verse 7 says, for he is our God and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture, the flock under his care. Here now that holy other transcendent God has become imminent and personal and he knows the hairs on my head or the lack thereof. And he knows what struggles I have in the flesh, the very needs that I came to this church with today. 
and he knows about the needs of the person around you, and yet we enter casually. We enter casually. There is nothing that dulls a worship service faster than for us to approach worship so casually. When you sing, sing. When you pray, pray. When you come before God and acknowledge his creatorship and his power and his transcendence, then you must bow in humility before that God. And yet when you stand, you embrace him as your friend, the one who is the the shepherd that has shepherded your, your very need. Otherwise, we close up church and go home. There's no real sense to it, is there? You come, I come, you forget 95% of what I say. We come back next week, we do the very same thing. Day in, day out, year in and year out. And then we wonder why our kids are starving on the spiritual tree. They're not getting it. Why aren't they getting it? Because you're not getting it. There must be preparation. I prepare. You wouldn't like it if I came in here unprepared. How do you know that person next to you without them even knowing it, needs to hear you sing, needs to hear you pray, needs a pat on the back, needs, but we're, we want our space. Make sure we don't touch. Make sure nobody touches us. Pastor, please don't tell me to turn around and shake hands with somebody to come to church with. Please, please do not tell me to turn around and tell somebody that I love them. I don't even know them, Pastor. I don't even know them. How can I possibly love them? Because God has loved them. And God has loved you. Therefore, you can love them. Next week, I'll give you the third element. And I'll give you ahead of time a heads up. It's what you forget 95% of. We'll talk about that next week and give you some preparatory steps. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to worship. And Lord, as we even come to this place to uh, give our hearts and our minds to you, We know that we are worshiping a holy God who is wholly other and yet cared enough to give his life on the cross for us. The world around him didn't seem to care. They just saw another criminal on a cross and yet the very God of the universe was being crucified there. How thankful we are that you came in the flesh to be tempted in every point like unto us, so that we might know you. As the great apostle Paul said, his goal, his ambition in life, to come to the end of his life and say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Lord, that's my prayer this morning for these people. I thank you, Lord, for their hearts. And I pray that something said here today, not just 5% of it, but all of it would be remembered and that they would be able to leave here today And approach this place next time in a spirit of humility, honest preparation, submission, desiring to hear your voice, desiring to know you, praying in a spirit of humility, hearing your word spoken and trusting that what is said from your word is true. Speak to their hearts in ways I cannot. And now may the grace of God the love of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the very presence, person, and power of his Holy Spirit abide with each of you now until Christ comes again and forevermore. Amen. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign 
and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.